0: Hi, this is Debony Morgan. Welcome to The Spirit of Now, a podcast in search of an opening of music. But we've got something much better than music today. We've got Carl McColman, a contemplative writer, speaker, teacher, and storyteller. Carl is the author of numerous books, including The Big Book of Christian Mysticism, Answering the Contemplative Call, An Invitation to Celtic Wisdom, and what we're going to be talking about today, Unteachable Lessons. Several of Carl's books have won awards or recognition, notably Befriending Silence, which won the 2015 Georgia Author of the Year Award in the field of inspirational and religious writing. His work has been warmly endorsed by many leading voices in the field of Christian spirituality, such as best-selling author Brian D. McLaren, who said, and I love this, if you don't know about Carl McColman and his work, you should. So I'm glad that we have the opportunity to introduce Carl and uh, we'll tell you a little bit more about where you can uh, meet him in person and get a hold of the book. Uh, Carl and his wife Fran have worked as adult catechists co-directing the Rite of Christian Initiation Process at their parish, St. Thomas More Indicator. His writing appears on numerous websites including Patheos, The Huntington Post, Day One, and Contemplative Journal, his own website blog, and his new site, Via Mystica, a website devoted to Christian mysticism. Carl co-hosts one of my favorite podcasts, Encountering Silence, with filmmaker Cassidy Hall and theologian Kevin Johnson. Carl, welcome to The Spirit of Now.
1: Debony, it is a pleasure to be here with you.
0: So today we are going to be talking about unteachable lessons, why wisdom can't be taught, and why that's okay. So looking at this title, I want to ask you... Why are there lessons that can't be taught? In other words, what we think of as ideas or wisdom that we get from reading books or sitting with our teachers, we absorb things that way, but you're talking about wisdom that can't be taught. In reading the book, it was a joy to feel like I was along with you in many of your experiences that have garnered wisdom for you. So tell me about the distinction between the ideas and the experience, and could you share with us one of the experiences that you talk about in the book, um, uh, particularly the Massaneta experience that you had? Okay.
1: Well, yeah, let me begin with the concept of the book, and it really goes back to a conversation that I had when I was either a senior in high school or just after I graduated from high school. So... Uh, many many years ago, um, when God was a boy, I had befriended the man who was the organist at my church at the time. His name was Steve, and we were you know we were friends, we were buddies. Uh, he was a few years older than I, but you know, but we we related more or less as peers. But I was um, I was a very kind of nerdy, bookish kind of a kid. You know, always had my nose in a book, that kind of thing, and. And so Steve poked at me about that one time and and I don't remember the context of the conversation, but we were talking about something going on in me, whether it was something spiritual or something involving, you know, a girl or I <laughs> I, I can't remember what specifically the matter was. But I remember he said to me at one point, he said, um, I think maybe he had mentioned something and I said, gee, I'd like to read a book about that or something like that. And his response was, what you're looking for, you're not going to find in a book. Yeah. And that really just, you know, as somebody who was such a, you know, a book oriented person, that was a bit of a kind of a slap. And I really had to stop and think about that, that, that there was this whole kind of dimension of personal growth, of of knowledge of wisdom, of understanding, of insight that does not get encoded in a book or in a weekend workshop, you know, or in an online course to bring it back to the present day. So, you know, that that little conversation, you know, 40 years ago now, um, just has echoed with me down the years on my various journeys and, you know, some of which the stories I tell in the book, but just coming to recognize that when you look at certain kind of significant dimensions of what it means to be human, what it means to be alive, what it means to be, you know, a spiritual seeker. I talk in the book, I talk about love, I talk about grief, I talk about trust, I talk about encountering God. I talk about um, you know, head versus heart, You know those mm-hmm. kinds of things that again and again, the lessons that I learned, I learned through living, not through reading, not through studying, not through apprenticeship, not through a guru. Not to say that there isn't a place for a wise book or for a discerning teacher Or for somebody who can be a spiritual mentor or director. I think all of those resources are valuable to us. But there still is this, um, this
0: dimension of life where only our heart can guide us. In fact, let me just read to you what is one
1: of the last sentences in the book. I say, the time will come when you need to close the book and go on with only your heart as your guide. Yeah. And that, and and spoiler alert, that's where my next book begins. Um, The book that I'm writing right now. Wow. But at any rate, um, so, so that's, that's really the heart of this book. This is a book about that you need to close the book. Yeah. And you need to let your heart be your guide. You need to let life be your guide. You need to let spirit be your guide. Yeah. And trust that. Trust that process. Trust the, to use a word, much beloved by the Christian contemplative and mystical tradition. Trust the unknowing. Trust the dark night of the soul. Mm-hmm. Trust those places where, where things are a little wild or a little out of control because those are the places where we meet the mystery and the mystery can guide us and lead us to where we need to be.
0: So. Oh, I love that and I agree so much. It reminds me of when when I was 18, mm-hmm. my boyfriend at the time lived in New York City and we were riding the subway and I was so enamored with him. I was 18 and I was just like Google eyed looking at him and he, he kind of, he said, look around meaning at the people on the subway, and he said, pay attention. And I, I, I was 18. I didn't understand what he meant. But later he was able to articulate that n- nothing really matters unless you're paying attention and absorbing it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so when you're talking about that, that, that place of, of experiencing the unknowing or meeting that and that the, the, the lessons themselves are embedded in life i think the beauty of the contemplative tradition is it teaches us to pay attention right everybody's living their life Mm -hmm. but you only get the juice if you're paying attention right
1: was it woody allen who said 90 percent of life is showing up yeah you know I, i there's there's wisdom there and that's that's true um in so many dimensions of how how we how we live out our days be present. Be here now. Show up. Pay attention. Open your eyes. Open your ears.
0: Be awake. You know, stop right? and stop and <laughs> smell the roses, or
1: as the cows in the far side said, "Stop and eat the roses." <laughs> you know, that's just. And and what does all of that have have in common? It's all. Very, it's very sensual. It's very embodied. You know, I think one of the challenges, and I and I I get into this in the book, but one of the challenges for me is that I do tend to be more of a head person than a heart mm-hmm. person and um you know and head people tend to be we love language we love syntax and grammar and vocabulary and you know and I mean good stuff we love poetry we love literature and sometimes we forget that there's something dangling underneath our head right. called a body, and that, right. that that body is a is a teacher, is a yeah. great and wise guide for this adventure that we're on. This adventure of being human,
0: and that poetry is always the finger pointing at the moon, anyway. Sure, right? Absolutely. Like you're saying absolutely. So, so we've we, we've got it that you know experience is where it's at, and also in typical non dual fashion, you also point out using uh, your colleague Kevin Johnson's quote, that experience is a trap, mm-hmm. or it can be. So tell us more about that.
1: Well, you asked me about Massaneta Springs. Right. So why don't I, I circle back to that, yeah, and, then we'll, and then we'll play with this, um, this, this question of can experience actually be a trap. And um, in Massanetta Springs is this beautiful old Presbyterian church camp. It's in the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia. I grew up in Virginia. And I didn't grow up Presbyterian. I actually grew up in the Lutheran Church. But the Lutherans, a couple of times a year, would kind of take over (laughs) Mass and, you know, I guess rent it from the Presbyterians and have various kind of programming. And, you know, being a young person, kind of active, you know, my parents were very active in our church, so I was active as well. And so it's just kind of got plugged into that. And I think like many young people back in the 1970s, you know, I had a love-hate relationship with With church, Mm -hmm. you know, on the one hand, you know, it was a place where I could meet girls, you know, and (laughs) just kind of, you know, flirt and, you know, then be a teenager. And truth be told, you know, there was a part of me that was drawn to the ritual and to the the spirituality of it. But there was also a part of me that kind of, you know, held it at arm's length. It was the institution. It was the man, you know. And so, you know, so there was definitely this kind of, um, you know, yeah. Push pull kind of dynamic going on. So, so I, I go to this weekend event in Massanutten Springs, the Shenandoah Valley, the winter of 1977. I'm 16 years old, and um, and I, you know, kind of part of me wanted to be there, part of me didn't. But it was it was a tight knit community. It was um, there was maybe 80 or 90 of us teenagers plus the adults, you know, who were providing the leadership. And over the course of the weekend, you know, my heart just kind of opened up to the experience. And then on Saturday night, they had a communion service. Now, remember, this is the late 1970s. This is the era of Kumbaya. Right. They'll know we are Christians by our love. You know, those, those kinds of kind of folky So, as You know, in the Catholic world, they called it the folk mass. You know, you, you yeah. didn't use the word mass in the Lutheran world, but it's kind of the same dynamic so so we had a communion service we were singing all these kind of acoustic guitar feel good kind of songs everybody's kind of arm in arm kind of swaying to the music you know we're in this we're in this room we're in the dining hall there at the at the conference center they just pushed all the tables out and created room for this this communion service and it's and I'm gonna I'm gonna struggle with this because you can't put it into words right. um during this, this experience, what I perceived was a luminosity. It's mm-hmm. as if the room suddenly became suffused with light. It became brilliant, luminous. Um, you know, it's like somebody had just just brought in a lot of bright lights and just amped it up. Simultaneously, and maybe even kind of, you know, integrally with all this, was this incredible sense of being loved, of being in the presence of love, that love was an energy that was flowing through all of the people, flowing through me, through all the the other kids and and grown-ups that were in the room. We it was communion, and the way they did communion was the bread and the wine was passed from person to person. So each person received from on one side, gave it to the next, you know, which is nothing particularly remarkable. You go to Ignatius House here in Atlanta, here in 2019, and they still do that, you mm-hmm. know. Um, but in in the midst of that, you know, kind of just kind of receiving the the music, receiving the liturgy, the ritual having this sense of this kind of just unearthly luminosity and this incredible sense of being loved and I would say being love. Mm-hmm. This just, it's like, it's just, I dropped into this kind of timeless space. And I say that because, I mean, in my mind's eye, I can go right back there and just be in, in the light and in the love. And it, it was timeless. It was it was um, it was eternal. It was like I was caught up in eternality. Right. And how long did it last? A minute, maybe, five seconds? I don't know. But it felt like it could have gone on for hours. Or it was nothing at all. It's it's like just you know, it's like clocks no longer were relevant. Right. And it passed. The moment um, subsided, if you will. The light kind of came back to normal. The service was over. And then they were immediately kind of tearing down, you know, the altar and the lectern and all that because they were going to have a dance because, you know, there was a bunch of (laughs)
0: 16-, 17-, and
1: 18-year-old hormonally amped up teenagers there. And what I remember was going... And there were a couple of people that were my buddies, and I found one or two of them. And I said to them, wasn't that the most amazing thing ever? And they looked at me and they said, it was all right. You you want to go grab a Coke or something? And it was just this moment, it's like at that moment, it almost kind of took a different edge. It got a little scary. Mm -hmm. Because I realized what I had experienced other people didn't and I'm, I, I'm saying that because there was a sense at which it felt objectively real to me it felt like whatever was happening the light and the love was you know it wasn't just my imagination yeah. it wasn't just it wasn't just a daydream it was much more visceral much more real than that you know what? And, and of course now I can I can I can inject some language into it. You know, it was an expanded state of consciousness. You know, um, you know I shifted into some sort of an altered state, but I didn't have any language like that. as yes. a sixteen-year-old kid. I just you know whoa. You know what happened? And and I didn't go to the dance. Now, full disclosure: I'm an introvert, so a lot of times i <laughs> you know blow off the dance and you know rather go read a book. But I, I I went back to my room and just kind of sat there and just kind of reflected. You know what happened? Yeah. What was that? So again, sixteen-year-old kid, middle white middle class, you know, American in the nineteen seventies, at a church camp. I just assumed, you know, somehow, you know, I just had gotten a big wet French kiss from the Holy Spirit, you know, and that suddenly yeah. God had somehow slapped me a little, and so I just assumed that I was had a call from God, and I just kind of you know just kind of threw myself into into kind of very devout Protestant Christianity and that lasted for about a year, a year and a half until the you know I ran into some kind of inner contradictions and issues like that but it you know on the larger sense it launched me on. You know, the journey that I'm still on today, more than 40 years later. And, um, you know, I arguably would not be sitting here with you right now if that hadn't happened. Um, And, you know, yeah, I've written books about mysticism. You know, I I lead retreats. I I do adult faith formation in a Catholic church, blah, 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 blah. All of that goes back to this moment in time. So, um, you know, so it literally changed my life. Okay, so you asked about experience. Right. You know, and this this quote from from my dear friend Kevin, you know, that experience is a trap. I was like, well, what does that mean? You know, because a lot of people will say, you know, I don't just want to read a book about God. I want to experience God, mm-hmm. you know. I think that, I, I, I mean, does that track with your experience that a lot of people kind of have yeah, that way of thinking? Yeah. In and, fact, and
0: when you describe that experience, I say, okay, where can I go get me some of that?
1: <laughs> <What is it? laughs> yeah, yeah. How do I sign up? Yeah. Well, to begin with, it took me several years to realize that that, I could just replicate that. You know, I would go. I remember the very next church camp I went to a few months later, and we had a Sunday night or Saturday night communion service. And I was so amped up. Here we go. And it was nice. <laughs> it, was, it was communion. It was, yeah, you know, I was with my friends. We sang some nice songs. And I remember really feeling crestfallen, you know, like, where's the experience?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Where's the experience? And so, you know, I think that one of the challenges that we have in, in, in this moment in time is that we can become so fixated on the experience of God that that basically becomes more important than a relationship with God or than being the person that we are created to be, which might mean that we're not necessarily created to have some sort of supernatural or, you know, exalted experience, but we're actually kind of wired to find God in the ordinary, to find God in the down-to-earth, to to find God in, you know, the, the, the giggle of a baby, Or, you know, the the patience of an elderly person in a nursing home. Or the struggle of of somebody who's working so hard to heal from trauma. You know, or the dignity of people of color dealing with the microaggressions that are just part of their lives in this world that we live in, etc., etc., etc. There are so many ways in which the sacred, the divine, meets us. And this kind of emotional... Even embodied experience, and again, not to say that any of that is bad, but to say that if, if that becomes the point of our focus, it runs the risk of becoming very self-referential, maybe even solipsistic. Mm-hmm. It becomes a form of spiritual narcissism. And I think that's what Kevin would say when he uses that kind of language, mm-hmm. that experience is a trap. So, so you know, does God grant mystical experiences? Absolutely. And when they come, what should we do? Hold them lightly, let them go.
0: Yeah,
1: you know. And and yet, the temptation is, and the trap I fell into was that when that came, I wasn't expecting it. I grabbed on tight. Yeah. And it took me a while to learn, to just to let it go.
0: Yeah. You know. You don't want to commodify it
1: yeah you know yet yeah, yeah turn it into something that you could you can bottle and sell you know and i think this is that you know we live in a culture that is dominated i mean look at the two coasts madison avenue and sunset boulevard we are dominated by marketing and entertainment mm-hmm. those are the two gods of the mm-hmm. cult that's the gog and magog of the culture that we live in mm-hmm. you know and so even those of us who are maybe embedded, you know, I don't care if it's Christianity or Buddhism or Wicca or, what, you know, the, the various kinds of lin, lineages that we have. But even we can be embedded in them, but we're still, we're still influenced by living in a marketing entertainment culture. And so we tend, to, we tend to approach the spiritual journey through the lenses of marketing and entertainment. Right. You know, nirvana, entertain us. I mean, that's that's the motto of our generations, yeah. you know. And so we want God to entertain us. And, and so that, again, that's the experience trap is, you know, it's like I, I deserve a mystical experience. I've been doing <laughs> centering prayer twice a day for the last 10 years, you know, and, and, and I volunteer at the homeless shelter and I've read all the right books. and I've gone on all the right retreats and I was a week on Iona, you know, done all the right pilgrimages. Don't I deserve something? Yeah. And I paid it's the like, price. Yeah, yeah, you where, know. Where, I,
0: where's, where do I get what I paid for? Where's the goodies? Right? Yeah,
1: where's the goodies? And so it's like, that's not how it works, you know? And then, or maybe you have some sort of, you know, I mean, you and I were just on Iona, you know? It's like, wow, it's really neat to go spend some time on Iona. It's, it's, it's obviously a place resonant with wisdom and with lineage and with, you know, with just this embodied spirituality. But, you know, somebody, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's like the movie Amadeus. You know, here you have Salieri who has worked so hard to be a good musician. And then along comes this kid, this rude, vulgar kid who's just busy <laughs> getting drunk and chasing after every cute woman he runs into. And he's a genius. Yeah. And and the movie that's a profoundly spiritual movie because it ends up with Salieri losing his faith. Yeah. Over it, you know? Well, and
0: interestingly enough, I mean the guy's name is Wolfgang Mozart, but they chose to use his middle name for this project. Originally, a play, obviously, but Amadeus of of God.
1: Yeah. The, yeah. The love of God. Right. You know exactly. It's a wonderful thing. So. Yeah. So um. So that's that's the thing about about the Experience Trap and um. You know, the only other thing that I would say, because you mentioned non-duality, you know, and it is hard to write about non-duality. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> you know, I'll tell you who I think has done a really, really wonderful job is Cynthia Bourgeau.
0: Yeah. In her
1: book, The Heart of Centering Prayer.
0: Yeah. One of the
1: best, at least from a Christian perspective. Obviously, there are writers in the East who just, you know, just sheer poetry. But from a Christian perspective, working within the Christian language and Christian framework, and 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 she she approaches it from a very critical position, and she looks at how other people have written about non-duality, and she kind of deconstructs it. You know, well, here's the weakness, the you know maybe the challenge there or whatever, but. Um, but one of the things that, you know, for me as a writer, you know, who, I wouldn't claim to be as gifted a writer as, as Cynthia Brugeau, but... She's the, hard to beat. <laughs> you know, I mean, she, she's amazing and, and and a wonderful, you know, just teacher too, you yeah. know, just this very articulate, you know, insightful person. But um, the, um, you know, one of the things that I've, I've come to recognize is that language itself is inherently dualistic, that... Um, that to talk about something almost of necessity means drawing a line.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, drawing a line between what's in and what's out, what's right or what's wrong, what's up or what's down, what's black or what's white, what's Christian or what's pagan, what's gay or what's straight, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, and what this idea of you know, the, the non-dual dimensions of being or of consciousness uh, you know, snaps us beyond that. Yeah. and I think that's one of the reasons why we say the mystical experience, there's that word again mm-hmm. is fundamentally ineffable you know, yeah. it, it, it cannot be put into words yeah. That's it, why, for me trying to talk about this night when I was 16 years old you know, what, 42, 43 years ago, I just become tongue-tied yeah. you know, it, it's just, it's the nature of the beast you cannot put non-duality into words if you do, you will betray it in one way, shape, or form yeah. We we're going to we're going to keep trying, you know, uh, it's 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 the human spirit. You know, we want to communicate what, you know, what we have seen or felt or known. But it's it's, you know, I mean, I talk in, in my book the my Christian mysticism book, you know, I, I say, you know, writing about Christian mysticism is like pot, trying to put love in a bottle, you know. You can't bottle up love. Right. You can't write about mysticism. Right. It's just—it was an absurd prize of fool's Aaron, And yet, I'm kind of a fool, so
0: <laughs> I did it. You know,
1: and, and so there you go. So.
0: Well, and I and it, I think some of the beauty of that too is if you could talk about it, the only the part of you that would talk be talking about it would be the ego,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and in in using that in some way. By making it absolutely ineffable, it makes it so that it can't be commodified. Yeah, that you, you there, the the only the only power or the only value it has is between you and the divine. Yeah, so that's
1: and 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 that's not to say that we shouldn't try to write about that. That you know, God bless Mary Oliver for her amazing poetry. Mm-hmm. You know, and Julian of Norwich and Meister Eckhart and these amazing amazing voices. You know, every century has given us, you know, at least one or two amazing voices. But just kind of coming to to recognize that it's all provisional. It's all contingent. Uh, No one ever has the final word. You know, today's wisdom will be marred by tomorrow's blind spots. You know, yeah yeah you, you know it's it's before we started recording, you and I were talking about the language of the false self, yeah. you know, which is language that I struggle with, and you mentioned that that uh, Richard Rohr struggles with. I think a lot of people struggle with that language, and I said, well, maybe in nineteen forty eight when Merton first cooked it up, it was really <laughs> useful language. I mean, maybe it predated that, but I haven't found it earlier than nineteen forty eight in merton's writing and um you know, and so what really worked seventy years ago is beginning to kind of show its age today and that, so this book that you're holding it may, it may be a wonderful book but there will come a day when people will very rightly criticize it <laughs> and say yeah but you know what about this or what about this it's obvious that he wasn't paying attention to that and you know and I think that's that's, um, that's the nature of the beast. But that's a beautiful thing because that shows how we evolve. Yeah. That there is an evolution in consciousness and an awareness. And, and in the ability, I think even language evolves. That, that we will become more and more capable of articulating, of effing the ineffable. But the ineffable will always somehow elude us. Yeah, I don't, I don't think language is ever going to master, master that, that mystery because no, what is mysticism? I mysticism agree. is the spirituality of mystery, and and you know and I and I don't want it. Yeah, it's, 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 it's on the great. internet it gets attributed to Evelyn Underhill, and I love Evelyn Underhill, so I want to give her the credit, but I've never been able to find it. But there's a quote, you know, around you know how the, the quotes online, <laughs> you know, what was it? Don't believe everything you read on the internet, said Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> you know, I love but it. Um, the um, but this quote attributed to Evelyn Underhill is that if your God is small enough. To comprehend it's too small to worship, yeah you know yeah. And, and and yet isn't that what we all try to do? The great minds, the Thomas Aquinas and the Augustine and the Carl Rahner and these these brilliant philosophers we we, we try to understand God we, we you know and 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 we all do that, we all try to control God, we try to make God manageable, and yet the divine you know refuses yeah. By by divine grace. You know, God is slippery. God is Grease lightning. You know, she slides out of our grasp again and again and again. And there's grace in that. Yeah.
0: Well, and that's one of the one of the wonderful things about the book is that you're You're not trying to have some sort of academic conversation about that. And although, you know, you have in other places, which is also wonderful, but the thing I loved about reading the book, which I did in one sitting, as I've told you, Mm -hmm. um, is you're just saying, this is, this is how it happened to me. You know, this, I'm just going to tell you a story about what happened to me and here's what I took away from it. You take what you will, right? Sure. And Absolutely. so it just makes it so approachable mm-hmm. and so easy to be with what you're talking about, because we're taking it down from the lofty rafters and putting it in the grit.
1: You know, this book was a departure for me. Most of my previous books have tended to be, you know, my writing is not academic. I'm, you know, I'm I I'm not a scholar. You know, I don't have a PhD, any of that kind of stuff. So I write for kind of the ordinary, you know, Joe and Jane Schmo, you know, (laughs) um, because I consider myself an ordinary Joe Schmo. So, you know, but um, but I love history. I love the great mystics. Um, I love some of the really neat interpreters of the great mystics like Evelyn Underhill or Bernard McGinn or some of these kinds of folks. So so I feast on that stuff. And that has kind of informed the writing that I've done. And it still is very much part of my blog and so forth. But with this book, and, and again, I think I was inspired by the mystics. I wouldn't, it's it's funny, you know, uh, well, uh, okay, the word experience, the word, <laughs> the word mysticism is another dirty word, but, you know, um, I've learned that if you write a book with a difficult word and you put the difficult word in the title of your book, you own that word. That word owns you, you know? Um, some, a friend of mine just came back from the contemplative outreach um, international conference. And in, I guess it was in Denver and she was, you know, she was all excited about the book and she was telling people, have you read Carl McCleman's new book? And I'm like, no, it's another book on mysticism. You know, I was like, oh, that's what people, you know, that's my brand, you know, right. oh, but at any rate is mysticism. I'm the mysticism guy. <laughs> Mr. Well, Mystic, Mr. Mr. Mystic. Oh, that's scary. Um, <laughs> but, the, um, but the thing is, taking a page from some of the great mystics, not that I would compare myself to a great mystic, but they wrote from their own story. You know, there's a wonderful passage in The Cloud of Unknowing. You know, we don't know the author, it's anonymous, but, but he's talking and he's making fun of people who always quote other people. You know, And he says, there are all these writers out there who keep quoting other writers. They quote the fathers of the church or, or the, the, the people in the Bible or whatever. And he says, and they're doing that. They're driven by their ego. They're doing that because they want to show you how learned they are. And he said, I think that's just folly, and I'm not going to do it. <laughs> and I remember reading that and thinking, well, that's what I do. I'm always quoting Julian of Norwich or Meister Eckhart or Thomas Merton or Evelyn Underhill, blah 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 blah. And I thought, what if I tried to write a book like, like *The Cloud of Unknowing*, and instead of constantly, and I mean, I still quote Julian of Norwich. I was going
0: to say you got a few in here. <laughs> yeah, I,
1: you know, it's in my blood. I can't, I can't just totally. And but you know, it's interesting because you, if you notice where I do the most of it. Is the chapter that where I'm very vulnerable, where I'm talking about the lessons I'm still learning. Mm-hmm. You know, the last chapter mm-hmm. of the book. That's where I tend to kind of fall back into my old habits. But um, but the um, this idea of can I write a book just out of my own experience again? There's that word. Mm-hmm. But um, trusting, not that I'm some sort of some sort of spiritual master that other people have to learn from. But the way I see it is that it's kind of like you and me having a conversation. I'm telling my story, hopefully, so that people who read it will be able to kind of calibrate it to their own story. Yeah. Because the reality is, is that one of the the messages of unteachable lessons is you don't need a guru. You don't need a teacher. Mm-hmm. Not that there isn't a place for good teachers. Yeah. I, you know, I think. We all benefit from guides and mentors and people who can kind of initiate us into into knowledge or into understanding. But at the end of the day, those deepest lessons, those unteachable lessons, your heart is your teacher. And so my heart can't be your teacher. Your heart has to do that. Mm -hmm. And so I talk about my heart to invite you to listen to your heart. That's really kinda kinda the point that hopefully I'm making here.
0: So. Yeah. And that reminds me of something that Jim Finley has said in I'm sure he's quoting somebody else, but I just remember Jim saying it, and that is it's not only what the teacher says, but the example of the teacher that assures you that it's possible
1: well uh, yeah another way of looking at it is if all else fails you can always set a bad example
0: (laughs) (laughs) oh i may be guilty of that (laughs) (laughs) but
1: but we you know so so we are examples Mm -hmm. and um, you know without realizing it we're examples just the way we live the way we relate to people the energy we bring into a room that, um, you know, and there's a level on which we are all teachers, Mm -hmm. you know. I mean, the first chapter of the book is about how my daughter was my teacher, Yeah. you know. And so here was this little girl, much younger than me, who had health issues, was handicapped, all of that, and yet she became my teacher. And so anybody can be our teacher at any time. I I, I worked with a, with a, a therapist one time, and she said, you know, look at everybody as your coach. Just let everybody be your coach. And that was such profound wisdom, such profound advice for me and something that I still I'm still getting mileage out of you know years years later so um, and I think you know back to this you know the Jim Finley quote how can we be a good example well first of all don't try to be a good example because then you'll just be (laughs) self-conscious but you know try to listen to your heart and be faithful to your heart, and then you'll be a good example. I'm reminded of that you know, quote attributed to St. Francis of Assisi. You know, and it's Christian language, but I think you can extrapolate it to any, any tradition. Preach the gospel, but only use words if you have to. Right. You know, let your life, let your body be the gospel. The word gospel just means good news. You know? yeah. Be yeah. the good news of God's love. Be the good news of mercy. Be the good news of relationship, of community. Of kindness, you don't. You know, there's a wonderful line from from Peter Gabriel uh, from the album "The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway," um, where he sings, "I can't, you know, remember it word for word. So, forgive me for paraphrasing, but he basically sees, sings something like, you know, I don't trust the man who has to shout what he's found. Hmm. There's no, no, I don't trust the man who tries to sell what he's found.'" There's no need to shout if you're homeward bound or something like that. Yeah. You know, again, this is, you know, people can look it up. It's the, the song The House of 32 Doors on The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway. It's a great line, you know, and something that for me is very humbling that I have the temerity to write books about the spiritual life. You know, I mean, yeah. what 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 who, who made me, you know, Mr. Mr. Mystic, you know? <laughs> well, but so I try to write out of this sense of humility and it's like that this isn't about that I have wisdom to share with you but that maybe I've learned a thing or two and hopefully you know that can resonate with the thing or two you've learned as yeah. well you
0: know, yeah so. and it does it, I think it, it points points us to our own experience that's similar so shifting gears a little bit I did want to ask you about this wonderful quote which I think is is one of my favorites in the book and you say Silence is the paper on which the ink of human consciousness is printed. All our thoughts, our feelings, our emotions, our imaginations and daydreams, our compulsions, our primal urges, it's all ink on the paper. Silence is the paper. Silence is the screen on which the film of our lives is projected, and silence, more than anything else within us, is the doorway to the presence of God. And elsewhere, you say that silence is shy. So I just wanted to ask you about, since you're speaking about your personal experience, our favorite word, tell us a little bit about uh, silence.
1: Well, um, Wow. Do we have all night? Right?
0: (laughs) I thought of that as I said it. How do you talk a little bit about that? You've got an entire show about it that's run for several years at this point. (laughs) And that's true.
1: I mean, you know, Kevin and Casti and I were brought together by our shared love of silence. And um, we all find silence in the context of contemplative Christianity, but that's certainly not, you know, because the Christians do not have, you know, a copyright on silence by any stretch. But I I'll, I'll, I'll start with, with the biblical tradition, you know, be still and know that I am God and that stillness is is not just a physical stillness like, you know, holding your body stationary, but it's also an interior stillness. Mm-hmm. You know, moving into that place that's deeper than just the noise of the noise of human consciousness, the noise of the firing synapses. Uh, then, you know, for God alone my soul in silence waits. The Lord is in his holy temple, let all the earth keep silence before him. And I read that, that's out of you know, the prophet Habakkuk, so it's you know, Old Testament Hebrew scriptures, a Jewish text. In fact, all the ones I've just quoted you come out of the Jewish scriptures. But I read that kind of through a New Testament lens, since my tradition is Christianity. And Christianity, you know, following Jesus' teachings, Christianity puts the temple in the heart, so the lord is in his holy temple god is in your heart let all the earth keep silence so so it's actually an invitation to be silent before our own heart and the reality is and again this is kind of a spoiler in the book i'm writing right now uh, the heart every beat of the heart that beat is cast before the silence of the heart our hearts contain silence not mm. a deadly silence, but a resonant silence, a silence that shimmers with the divine presence. I think it was Thomas Keating, the wonderful monk who you know, helped to formulate the centering prayer kind of method of, of contemplation, who said, um, you know, silence is God's first language. Everything else is a poor translation. That's back to effing the, the ineffable. You know, uh, I think it was, um, uh, was it Meister Eckhart, maybe? I'm not sure here, but somebody who said nothing resembles the divine more than silence. So, so in silence, we touch the face of God. In silence, we are brought into the divine presence. In fact, for the longest time on Twitter, my, my Twitter bio was silence is not an absence, it is a presence. You know, and and then I found out that wasn't original with me, so I pushed it to something else. But you know, but it, I mean, this wisdom—it's it, it, yeah. it's, yeah. nobody can copyright this wisdom. I mean, that's the reality. That, um, and we live in a culture that's afraid of silence, right? You know, and hey, I love my phone. I live by my phone. Oh, I, love I love rock and roll. You know, I chased the Grateful Dead around when I was younger. You know, all of that is true. You know, and uh, but the, the the thing is, is that. You can love the energy of life and then still drink deeply from the well of silence. I was reading, uh, I'm I'm going through, I think it's William Harmon's, uh, The 500 Greatest Poems of the English Language. I've just been kind of going through that, reading a couple every day. And I'm at John Milton right now. Okay. In fact, today, just today, I read L'Alegro and Il Penseroso." you know, Miltons, which I, I probably hadn't read them since I was in high school or college, you know. But, and it was a delight to go back and read these poems. And I thought about it, you know. Allegro is, you know, the joy of life, you know, delight, party, making love, you know, flirting, dancing, all that, you know. Going to hear, you know, Kenny Howe <laughs> sing the Beatles. You know, that's, and isn't it wonderful that we have that energy? And Il Penseroso, that's contemplation. That's the cloister. Mm-hmm. That's the monastery. That's silence. And, and I remember when I was in high school, everybody said they loved the first poem and they had no use for the second. That's our cultural paradigm. Yeah. The party, we all love the party. But the cloister, eh, you know, that's for those weird monks. You know, so there's, now, still, it still reaches us. People, people get drawn to the desert. They get drawn to the wilderness. People walk into a cathedral, and, they, and they're moved to silence. You know, even art galleries, you know, you, you go and stand in front of the Mona Lisa, you know, and you're, you know, so great beauty, great, great splendor. Uh, the the vastness, you know, going out, getting far enough away from the city that you can actually see the Milky Way at night, yeah. you know, or, or going up north, you know, I remember, you know, uh, I dated a woman from Minnesota at one point, she took me up to the Boundary Waters and I saw the northern, you know, I, Atlanta, Georgia is where I live, you know, you don't see the northern lights down here very much and I remember seeing the northern lights you know I just moved into silence. So, so we, we it, 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 it grabs us anyways because it's so, so powerful but we still live in a culture that's basically kind of scared of it, you know so um, so, how did I find it? Well, I think it it was probably just a consequence of what happened at Massanetta that having again, having a taste for this kind of this kind of sense of the divine, I wanted more and you know, and then, you know, a couple of years after that, somebody gave me, my friend David, gave me a copy of this book, Mysticism by Evelyn Underhill. That opened me up to the contemplative tradition, the Western contemplative tradition. That was amazing. And, you know, and, I, and I, I chart this in the book. And then because of that, I discovered the Shalem Institute, which is a, a, an, an ecumenical slash interfaith but rooted in Christianity, contemplative community in Washington, D.C., and there, I was introduced to communal silence to people meditating and being silent together as a spiritual practice. And once I had a taste of that, it's like this this is who I am, yeah, you know and and so it's just you know it's just been part of my story ever since. And so back to the you know you 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 mentioned that the quote the silence is shy, and of course. nobody's going to believe this listening to this but really way deep down inside I'm shy you know I'm a shy person that's learned to be gregarious but um, you know so shyness is um, I think there's a beauty beauty in shyness Parker Palmer says the soul is shy and I think that's really true too and so so it's kind of the same thing and I think God is shy the divine is shy um, that you know that that God does not push God's self on us you know that the, the the spiritual journey is an invitation it's never a demand you know some people that, you know if, if, if you've gotten really you know if you've gotten caught in addiction or or, or you know or there's profound suffering or you know your life is in free fall sometimes the invitation is really loud because you need it it becomes a matter of life or death but you know but it's 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 never forced on anyone and so um you know it's um and so that's the way she, Silence is, silence is the great wallflower. You know, she sits in the corner and she's perfectly happy to just sit in the corner. But you have to go to her, you know, or him. I mean, no gender here. Or them, you know. We can use any pronoun. I'm, I'm not Jordan Peterson. I like all the pronouns. But, um, you know, it's just, um, but that's, that's who silence is and how silence is.
0: That's just beautiful. No. Oh. That's just beautiful. Switching gears just a little bit more, I I also love this quote here in the chapter called "I do not think it means what you think it means."
1: <laughs> the yes, Princess the, Bride the, the book is littered with pop culture references, oh, it, it, is which
0: I, I find yeah. very endearing uh, and inviting. The Rain um,
1: Man, um, even the Wizard of Oz. You know, oh, pagans, right. pagans and druids and Buddhists. Oh, oh my! <laughs>
0: Uh, You see here, spirituality is, at least when it's truly healthy, holistic. The body, the soul, and the mind are all beneficiaries of God's love and grace. Prayer and other spiritual disciplines are meant not only to heal us spiritually, but mentally and physically as well. Learning to love our creatureliness... I love that word... Uh, yes, even our fleshliness is a consequence of choosing to orient orient our lives to the all-encompassing love of God. Um, and then also in this chapter, you confess to be a recovering Vulcan. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us more about this holistic piece. I thought this chapter was really important, particularly for people who have been raised in a more evangelical or conservative way of viewing themselves as christians well you know
1: this is interesting because the mystical kind of strand of christianity is very much kind of a is it was a gift given to us by the greeks you know the neoplatonic kind of the flight of the alone to the alone there's this kind of transcendental quality to a lot of mysticism. And a lot of Christians in our day, particularly kind of in the progressive world, um, really kind of push back at that. And um, and I'll, I'll tell you a story, I'm not going to name the name, but I wrote a book a few years back that was based on C.S. Lewis's one of the Narnia books, The Voyage mm-hmm. of the Dawn Treader, which is is very much kind of Built on that kind of idea of you know sailing over the waters to to find the land where God lives, you know this kind of thing. And a major Christian author who shall remain nameless refused to endorse the book, and he said, "It's too platonic." And and at the time I was kind of put out, you know. But <laughs> but eventually I came to just you know be at peace with it you because know, other people endorse the books. I'm like, okay, I got my endorsements. But, you know, came to be a piece with it that this particular author really has an issue with the Greek kind of influence of Christianity. And, and, and I really appreciate this desire to reclaim kind of the Jewish or the Hebrew dimension. Because mm-hmm. Jesus, after all, was, um, was Jewish. He, he may have known Greek. You know, he was a businessman. He was a carpenter. So he probably knew Greek. But his, 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 his birth language would have been Aramaic which is similar more to, like, modern, maybe Arabic or Syriac. Um, you know, and, uh, you know, and of course he, he, he would have read Hebrew because he could read the Psalms. You know, so he, he definitely was a Semitic person and immersed in that culture. And then, but Christianity really does represent kind of this kind of integration of the Jewish and the Greek. You know, right. the, the New Testament was written in Greek. And so it's from the Greeks that we get kind of this transcendental, you know, trying to climb out of this world into, you've seen that wonderful uh, wood carving of where there's the spheres, the celestial spheres, and you see this person crawling out of the celestial spheres to, to, to reach the celestial or the heavenly realm. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so, so so there is a beauty in that kind of transcendentalism, but there's also a shadow side. And that's why I think this author was was, was bothered by. It. And that and the shadow side of it is dualism. And, and dualism, as right. it's traditionally understood, is this idea that spirit is good and matter is inferior. Mm-hmm. And that matter is somehow bad. And and because matter is bad, the body is bad. And because the body is bad, sex is bad. Mm-hmm. And so all of that is woven together. And then what became doubly pernicious was that spirit became equated with the masculine and matter became equated with the feminine,
0: mm-hmm. and so
1: that then also contributed to the kind of sexism that we see, you know, still rampant in many many corners, not only of Christianity but of our society at large. So, so there's a real problem there, and a problem that needs to be deconstructed. And how I became kind of uh, an unhappy beneficiary of that. Was that I was, I was, as a child. You know, I think I was a clever child. I I wouldn't say I was a genius by any stretch, but a clever <laughs> child. You know, I always did well on, on standardized tests, whatever that means. Uh, you know, but I'm also white and middle class, and those tests tend to be calibrated towards white middle class kids. You know, it's so all that. But um, but I also I did not excel at sports. I was not an athletic child. And so I just became one of these kids that was all about my head, you know. And I, I mentioned in the book I mentioned um, Sheldon from The Big Bang Theory mm-hmm. and Mr. Spock from Star Trek, uh, uh, brains Benton and uh, Tom Swift and all these these kind of children's literary figures that were very you know kind of intellectual, and um, and that was kind of the world that I lived in, and it served me well until about puberty (laughs) and then suddenly it became a liability you know when i kind of realized to my utter dismay that girls were much more attracted to the football players than to the guys like me and i'm like oh (laughs) now what you know so um you know and it's 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 all good but um you know so i this is the whole idea of being a recovering vulcan uh, you know is that i've had to learn that you know, that, that the mind is not better than the body. That the spirit is not better than matter. You know, that, um, that I am called to be both. I'm called to be both embodied and conscious. And to be embodied consciousness. And that, that the spiritual journey, you know, and, and like I say, I, unlike this author who wouldn't endorse my book... I'm not going to reject the Greek because to me that's just another dualism. Right. But it's like right. to try to find a holistic spirituality that integrates the best of the Greek and the best of the Jewish together, you know. And so I, when I think of Jewish spirituality, in fact, I, 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 do a, I do a retreat on the Jewishness of Jesus. And, and what I do is I, I have two slides, you know, a PowerPoint presentation or keynote because I'm a Mac person this keynote presentation where the, I have a slide and I say, this is Greek spirituality, and it's that, that wood carving of the guy crawling out of the celestial spheres uh-huh. to try to reach the heavens. And then I say, and here's Jewish spirituality, and I show a Seder. And, and the, the family around the table, yeah. and it's a party, and they're celebrating, and they're feasting, and they're telling stories and singing songs. You know, and it's very this worldly, but in the best sense of that yeah. sense, you know. And so what I say is that the genius of Christian spirituality, including Christian contemplation and mysticism, is that it brings those two together. And it gets it gets out of whack when they emphasize one to the detriment of the other. Yeah. And yeah. yet, our culture as a whole has tended to to emphasize that Greek transcendental spirituality and kind of dismiss that more immanent, that more Embodied, incarnational, fleshy—dare I say Mm it—sexy, sensuous, delicious spirituality. And so we need to reclaim that. And that was part of what I was trying to get at with this whole idea of a holistic.
0: Yes, absolutely. I I love it, and you know, very much aligned with uh, Richard Rohr's latest book, *The Universal Christ*. You know, Mm -hmm. going going deep into that as well. One last question for you,
1: okay?
0: and that is, you begin the book by introducing your readers to Rhiannon, Mm -hmm. and I just want you to tell us however much of that story you feel like telling without giving away too much in the book. Oh, yeah. Um, Okay.
1: Um, Rhiannon uh, was my stepdaughter, was or is. Um, She's still in my heart, but she's no longer embodied on the planet. She passed away about five years ago. She was born with polycystic kidney disease, which a lot of people will know. That was the disease that claimed Irma Bombeck, the the mm. famous writer from a few years ago. It is it is a hereditary disease. She she inherited from her biological dad, um, and she was sick her whole life. When when she was born, they they thought she wouldn't. Survive a few hours. They they actually. She was born in a hospital that no longer exists. The hospital was torn down a few years ago, out in um, near Douglasville, out in Austell, Georgia, and um, and they they had to get her to Emory. They, you know, it was like a an ambulance barreling down I twenty. You know, ninety miles an hour, with with um, you know a nurse in there. You know, performing CPR just to keep the baby's mm-hmm. heart beating you know because she was just she was so sick from birth and um but she she did survive she survived eight weeks in neonatal icu and um you know and just began to live her life even though she had she had these huge overdeveloped kidneys with cysts on them and consequently so much else in her body was underdeveloped but she beat the odds she survived uh my wife's first marriage fell apart so fran became a single mom they they just carried on, and then when Rhiannon was three years old, she had a stroke.
0: Oh goodness! And
1: again, consequent of the polycystic kidney disease, it led to that that kind of medical condition, and spent a week in the hospital. You know, had seizures for a number of hours, ended up in a medically induced coma for almost a week, mm-hmm. and um, and when she came out of the coma, it's like the hard drive had been wiped clean. You know, they had to begin with just learning basic language. And, um, and she, she for the rest of her life, she was hemiplegic. She was paralyzed on the right side. Of course, she was right-handed, right-dominant. So she lost that. She never walked. She just was in a wheelchair the rest of her life. And um, so I come along when Rhiannon was, let's see, do the math, Carl, right before she turned seven. So she was six years old when I met her. But just a few weeks after I met her, she turned seven. And, um, and then she died when she was 29. So so I was in her life 22 of her 29 years. She was uh, an amazing person. She was, she was just sweet and fun, and we were buddies. And, um, you know, we had a, a wonderful relationship. But she also, she taught me a lot. She taught me about love. She taught me about commitment. She taught me about sacrifice. She taught me about dignity, she taught me about perseverance, and then she taught me about death and about dying and she left me with a lesson to learn about grieving and so it was um, it was quite a journey and and I had to deal with some of my my resistance to love and my kind of my narcissism and my immaturity and um, you know, so it wasn't always easy. It wasn't always, you know, just, just, you know, bunny rabbits and rainbows. There was some pain in there. And when she passed away, I was really, I felt humbled because I was so conscious of all the ways I had failed her, that I wasn't the father I thought she deserved. And... At the wake and at the funeral and in the weeks after, so many people came up to me and said, you know, you were such a gift to her. You know, the stepfather who stepped in, yeah. married Fran, took on the role of being being a parent to this very, very, you know, sick and handicapped child. And I was like, oh, you don't know the whole story, you know. I, it was a mess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then finally somebody somebody sat me down it may have been Fran it may have been another friend I can't remember somebody sat me down and said said okay you weren't the perfect father but but you were still a gift and and I realized the gift that I was to Fran and Rhiannon was largely because of what Rhiannon taught me Mm. but you know but I couldn't have again I couldn't have learned it from a book I couldn't have learned it from a course you know you know, how to how to transition from being a narcissistic, self involved young man to being a parent who really, you know, puts your children first. In six easy lessons. <laughs> 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 Only twenty nine ninety five. Sign up now. Operators are standing by. That doesn't exist. You you live it by doing it. Yeah. And it's messy and it's imperfect and you make mistakes. And then you have to live with that and you to, hopefully you can clean up your own mess. Yeah. and um you know I, I i i'll just say this one bit so you know Rihanna was in hospice for seven months and at the beginning of her hospice journey we knew she was going to pass away it's just a matter of time um you know i i felt the need to apologize to her and to say to her you know i'm sorry i wasn't the father that you deserved, and she said, "What do you mean?" You know, she wasn't gonna let me off the hook. She said, "What do you mean?" And I said, "Well, think about all the times I lost my temper at you and I yelled at you, and blah blah blah." And she was like, "Oh yeah, that." <laughs> <laughs> and so I said, "I'm I'm sorry," and she said, "Well, you're forgiven." I mean, it was like it was it was mm. like it was not an issue to her. She's like, "You're not perfect, duh, mm. you know, uh, none of us are. You're forgiven." So it was a sweet moment, this tender moment, and we gave each other a hug, you know, and and so, yeah. and then. And so so she said the hospice, seven months. So then the week she's dying, and we know she's dying, the hospice nurse says, in fact, she was with us like on a Wednesday or Thursday, and she said, she'll be gone before the weekend is over, and she died on a Saturday afternoon. So, you know, it was just real yeah. obvious. Um, I, I, Mr. Slow Learner here, I had to bring it up again, and I said, Rhiannon, I am I, just feel like I need to apologize. And she said, we've already had this conversation.
0: Yeah.
1: It's like, can't you accept the fact that I've forgiven you? <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, okay. That's what, how forgiveness works, you know. When somebody forgives you, your job is to accept their forgiveness. Yeah. You know? So even as she was dying, she was teaching me. What a beautiful soul. So, so uh, it's, um, yeah, I'm, I'm just, I, 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 I owe that little girl so much. And, um, and so it was, it's just it was a privilege to write about her I, I think I shared with you you know I wrote about her in my blog you know kind of in real time as this was happening but it was one you know and five years needed to go by you know it, 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 it was some time obviously but to be able to go back reread some of those blog posts relive you know just the story and to be able to put it into a narrative form I mean and it's a story about me as much as it's about her because I'm talking about the lessons I learned yeah. You know, but um, but it's it was fun to kind of, you know, invite her into the book.
0: So, yeah. yeah. Well, and I wanted to save her for last in our conversation, but I love how it is the first chapter in the book because you are so vulnerable in exposing some of your poor choices <laughs> and the immaturity and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And because you were so um, transparent with your readers it was an invitation to truly find ourselves in in what you wrote
1: well and you know that of course that chapter is called unteachable lessons it's the title yeah, chapter yeah. of the book because to me i could not think of a better story to lay out the thesis of the book yeah. than the story about my relationship with rihanna so,
0: well and to that end could i get you to quote yourself <laughs> could, could i get you to read that uh, the end of that first chapter sure. which i think is a is a wonderful uh, wrap up to our conversation, and invitation to our readers to, if they haven't yet, to um, pick up the book, and to in- enjoy uh, the rest of it. But, but how did you end that chapter for sure. us, Carl?
1: Okay. It's been several years now since her passing, and I tell her our story from time to time. Almost at every telling, I meet someone who has a similar story to tell, of the unsung perseverance of caring for a sick child, or grief that felt like gratitude, or slowly discovering that love blossoms in our lives even when we're not expecting it. I've come to see that unteachable lessons are available to just about all of us, and I suspect that the more we need these unteachable lessons, the more likely they are to show up in our lives. Maybe they don't always entail suffering and loss, But I suspect they always involve some sort of deep interior transfiguration that is messy and unchartable and just can't be put into words. These are the lessons taught to us in silence, and the curriculum is life. The syllabus is nothing more than our willingness to be present.
0: That's really beautiful. For those that want to buy the book, can they find links on your website, Carl? Uh-
1: Absolutely. I um, I have an e-commerce site. It's very simple. It's so that's mccolman.net. that's M C C O L M A N Has that book? Has my other books? Um, and and if you go to the page, and you'd really rather buy it through Amazon, I have actually links to Amazon, Barnes and Noble, and to Indiebound, which is puts you in touch with independent bookstores so i want to support you know independent bookstores yeah. but then obviously you can also buy it directly from me and then you get an autograph Woohoo. but um, so those are options ob- but i also you know back to that theme of independent bookstores you know support your local retailer you know most most bookstores should be able to special order it if they don't have it in stock Great. so i would encourage people to do that as well
0: well and an and another way to get a hold of the book is um, if you're hearing this before thursday october 17th and you are in the atlanta area Carl will be doing a reading of the book and um, signing your own personal copy, and you can buy it directly from Carl that evening. That's Thursday, October 17th at 7 p.m. And you can find out more about that at the Zeitgeist website. That's Z, like zebra, or like Zeitgeist, Z-G-A-T-L dot org forward slash Carl's book. And Carl spells his name with a C. So Z-G-A-T-L dot go- dot org slash Carl's book. Also, mark your calendars because next fall, autumn of 2020, Carl will be teaching an eight-week course on Christian mysticism, and that is you get all of this wonderful- wonderfulness for weeks at a time. It's going to be terrific. Ooh. So hopefully we will see you on Thursday, October 17th, and Carl, thank you so much for your time and the wonderful warmth and energy that you bring. And uh, I am just really happy for the opportunity to talk to you tonight and always. And um, good luck.
1: Well, thank with the you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Namaste.